From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, five and a half million Americans are estimated to be living with Alzheimer's disease. Understanding and effectively treating Alzheimer's disease is one of the most difficult challenges faced by doctors and scientists today. On today's program, we'll learn about efforts to improve research from a Mayo Clinic expert. What was found was about 30% of the people enrolled in these trials and treated for Alzheimer's disease didn't have Alzheimer's disease. Also on the program, we'll hear about a new NBC program, Health and Happiness with Mayo Clinic. And 40 years of improvements in treating stroke. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. When we think of dementia, most people automatically think Alzheimer's disease. But under a new definition of Alzheimer's, the two terms are no longer considered to be interchangeable. That is dementia and Alzheimer's. The most up-to-date definition is part of a new framework for researching Alzheimer's disease that the Alzheimer's Association and the National Institute on Aging developed and released this past April. In the new research framework, Alzheimer's disease is not diagnosed based on symptoms. Instead, it is diagnosed by its neuropathology, that is, the disease or abnormality in the brain. This is a shift in thinking. Symptoms are consequences of the disease and not the definition of the disease. Here to help us understand this new way of thinking about dementia and why it's important is Mayo Clinic radiologist and Alzheimer's researcher, Dr. Cliff Jack. Welcome to the program, Dr. Jack. It's nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Dr. Jack, nice to have you on the program, particularly to talk about this topic because there are so many people who now have Alzheimer's disease. My question is, when you say neuropathology, that suggests to me that somebody looked at the brain under the microscope, and that's really not what you're talking about, is it? No, it's not. By neuropathology, in this case, what we mean is that the diagnosis can be made biologically. So the term we use in the framework is biologically based rather than clinically based. And there are two ways to get to a a biologically based diagnosis. One is neuropathology. As you said, people look at the brain, they identify at autopsy plaques and tangles. The second way, uh, so that's good, but not helpful to living patients. Obviously. The second way is through biomarkers. And um, there are well, at this point, fairly well-established biomarkers of plaques and tangles that can be ascertained in living patients. And those biomarkers fall into two general categories, one, brain imaging, and two, uh, proteins measured in suitable spinal fluid. And I don't know if the discussion will take us there, but plasma-based biomarkers are obviously a hot topic people are working on. So blood. Blood, yeah. And we're not there, though. You can't make the diagnosis of Alzheimer's from a blood sample. Correct. But you can make the, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's through an imaging studies or a spinal tap. Exactly. Yeah. And and you're in the field of the imaging study. Yeah, I'm in the imaging area. And, and so the brain imaging studies that can be used to make the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, the, the diagnosis is a little bit nuanced, as is the neuropathology. So we on the NIAAA Research Framework Working Committee, you know, sought to reflect 
uh, with biomarkers what neuropathology has uh, done for years. So the diagnosis is a little bit nuanced. So there are two kinds of uh, pathologies that are necessary to make an autopsy diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, plaques and tangles. And so consequently, there are two different kinds of PET imaging studies that are needed to make a definitive diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease in living persons. In living persons, Amyloid PET, so a ligand that binds to and reveals the presence of plaques. And tau PET, a ligand that binds to and, relie- and uh, uh, reveals the presence of the tangles, neurofibrillary tangles. So those are the two imaging modalities. And then in the CSF area, cerebral spinal fluid area, the two kinds of proteins that are measured Analogously, are A-beta-42, a marker of uh, 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 plaques, and uh, tau, specifically phosphorylated tau, a marker of neurofibrillary tangles. So those are the accepted biomarkers uh, that are in use in research today, and that's how the disease would be defined in the living person. So what does that have to do? Correlate that with what we what we our intro said is that the, you're changing the the definition. So dementia does not equal Alzheimer's and vice versa. Right. So um, it is as just exactly as you stated in the intro. People both in both in the general public, but also in medicine, most throughout most of medicine, equate the term dementia and Alzheimer's disease and. You can go back a little bit in history and see how that happened. So the initial uh, definition of Alzheimer's disease was put together by another panel, being paneled by the National Institutes of Health back in the 1980s, the so-called McConnell criteria. And the definition at that time was that if a person had a progressive cognitive impairment that, that progressed to multiple cognitive domains, that led to loss of independence after other things were excluded that you would give a diagnosis of possible or probable Alzheimer's disease. Over time, the terms possible and probable just got dropped. And so people equated then a clinical syndrome, progressive clinical decline leading to dementia with Alzheimer's disease. We know now from research that's been done over the past few decades that that's incorrect. And what do I mean by that? It's incorrect in two ways. First of all, it's incorrect in the sense that there are other brain pathologies that either alone or in a combination can lead to dementia that looks exactly like Alzheimer's disease. What are they? Well, the common ones are something called hippocampal sclerosis, vascular disease, particularly multiple small strokes, Lewy body disease, which is the proteinopathy involved in Parkinson's disease, and there are others. But it turns out that in people clinically diagnosed with quote-unquote Alzheimer's disease, uh, based on clinical grounds, about 30% don't have Alzheimer's disease. So why is this a problem? Well, it wasn't really a huge problem until people started doing clinical trials that sought to uh, modify the underlying course of the disease. And when clinical trials were done, enrolling people on the standard clinical criteria, but those people that were then examined with imaging, what was found was about 30% of the people enrolled in these trials and treated for Alzheimer's disease didn't have Alzheimer's disease. Now, think of it. Imagine a clinical trial for cancer where 30% of the people who were enrolled didn't have the cancer they were being treated of. I mean, it's unheard of, right? But that was the state of the art. And 
that is one of the explanations that people in the field point to to explain a lot of these failed Alzheimer's clinical trials. So that's one big problem, and that is the classic clinical diagnosis is not specific for the disease after which it's named. There are other things that are common in aging that can cause an identical syndrome. The flip side problem is the fact that, again, this has been revealed by research over the past few decades, that the brain pathology precedes symptoms by up to 20 years. So symptoms classically used clinically to to define the disease actually are a late occurring event in the sequence of events that constitutes the disease. So consequently, brain pathology appears well before symptoms. It can be identified by biomarkers. And if one would like to intervene therapeutically prior to the onset of symptoms, how can you do that? Well, there's only one way to do that, and that's to identify people who have no symptoms but on the basis of biomarkers, have the brain pathology. And thus, that would be so-called a secondary prevention trial. Think of any other area in medicine. That's the most effective way to treat, is to treat an individual on the basis of a biomarker evidence of underlying disease or underlying pathophysiology prior to the onset of symptoms. In every other area of medicine, that's how to do it. And again, if you go back to the definition If the definition is there's no disease, quote-unquote, until there are symptoms, then how can you prevent symptoms? (laughs) So Yeah, so uh, plaques and tangles, we don't need to know exactly what those are, but there Mm -hmm. are things that you see under the microscope uh, are specific to Alzheimer's disease and can now be picked up in two ways, an imaging study that you would do or an examination of the cerebral spinal fluid, a spinal tap. Mm -hmm. All right, last question for this segment. Why does it matter? I mean, we don't have any way to, to even if you knew, we mm-hmm. don't have anything, to, to, any way to prevent it from progressing, right? Right. So, um, and the answer to that question is, today, it matters mostly to people who are doing clinical trials, designing clinical trials, and for people who are enrolling in clinical trials. That's who it matters to. All right, we're talking about Alzheimer's disease with Mayo Clinic researcher and radiologist, Dr. Cliff Jack. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about Alzheimer's research under this new framework. Where are we headed? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking with Dr. Cliff Jack. He is a radiologist and Alzheimer's researcher at the Mayo Clinic, and he has told us that there are now a couple of definitive ways to diagnose Alzheimer's disease, either through imaging with the brain or through a cerebral spinal fluid exam. And researchers are also working on being able to diagnose Alzheimer's with a blood sample, but we're not there yet. So the next question would be, who uh, ought to have this test? I mean, uh, um, maybe I'd like to know if my grandma has Alzheimer's disease. Should she get an imaging of her brain or a cerebral spinal fluid exam? Yeah, so th- um, this is uh, an area where there's act- actually active research, and there are, uh, there are sort of committees that are looking at appropriate use criteria for both of these, CSF, so cerebral spinal fluid, and brain imaging. And... I wouldn't say that the criteria at this point are fixed, are hard and fast, um, but I think most people, most people in neurology would say that 
if someone who has so first let me preface this by saying um, to uh, to my knowledge certainly the brain imaging uh, agents are no one pays for them so no insurer will pay for them the FDA has cleared three of the amyloid pet ligands for for fit for purpose so the study is safe and it answers safe. the question you want to answer yeah but but no one pays for it hmm. um, um, I think most people would say, for example, that if someone is symptomatic and if the individual and the family wants to know what the etiology is, because again, as we discussed initially, uh, someone who meets, who looks exactly like the classic clinical picture of what's called Alzheimer's disease doesn't necessarily have Alzheimer's disease. There are other things that can cause the symptoms. So if the patient wants to know, if the family wants to know, if someone who has, is symptomatic has Alzheimer's disease, then that would be if they could figure out a way to pay for it, to have the to have the test. Much more controversial uh, is should these kind of tests be done in individuals who are asymptomatic but who are worried. They might be worried because they feel they have a memory problem, incipient memory problem. They might be worried because they had a, uh, a first-degree relative um, uh, who uh, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in life. Mm-hmm. I think that's much more controversial. I th- most people would say that if you are worried but don't really have any symptoms, probably not. Um, I would say the field is probably evenly split on the second issue of if someone is is clinically normal, but they feel subjectively that they have a memory uh, worsening memory problem, should they get tested? Because again, there's there's no treatment that can alter the underlying course of the disease. The purpose of testing in these cases is just to inform the patient what is going on in their brain. But if anybody ever comes up with a drug that will prevent further deterioration in a patient with known Alzheimer's disease, you're going to be really busy. Yes. So all these recommendations will change overnight. You know, which is one of the which is a, a driving force for ongoing research into these biomarkers. Because the reality is, it's an exaggeration. The minute, but really, the minute a something is approved for as a disease modifying treatment. Everyone over age 65 or so is going to be asking their physician who is concerned about it, who either has symptoms or is concerned about symptoms or is concerned about developing symptoms. I'm worried. I want to get tested. I want to get treated if I'm positive. And so developing and validating these tests for the disease, biologically-based tests, biomarker tests, um, even in the absence of an obvious intervention, effective intervention, is important to plan for, set the stage for the eventual clinical application. So, yeah, so I just want to ask you, how much does this test cost? I mean, yeah, PET, PET is expensive. A PET scan will cost, I think, about $5,000. CSF is much less expensive. That's but, a spinal tap. Yeah. yeah, spinal tap is much less expensive in the order of a few hundred dollars. But people are, in the United States at least, are not so excited. There are a lot more amenable to getting an injection in the vein and getting a scan than they are having a needle in the spine and getting a lumbar puncture. So those are the issues. The ultimate application, or let's say the ultimate paradigm that people in the field envision is with the development of uh, sensitive, but not necessarily specific, but sensitive plasma-based or blood-based biomarkers that could be used to screen the population 
like a test for diabetes or, or hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, and then individuals who are positive and who met certain clinical criteria would go on to these more expensive and or invasive tests. But neither lumbar puncture nor brain PET is envisioned for mass screening. And what got us started today is the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And at this stage of the game, it's not important for patient treatment as it is to know for research purposes, which will eventually affect patient treatment. Correct? Sure. Do I have that right? Okay, good. Make sure right. I understand this. Right, right. So what research is underway here at Mayo Clinic? Right. At Mayo Clinic, there are several kinds of research. So here in Rochester, we have two large cohorts of individuals. The principal investigator of both of these studies is uh, Ron Peterson. One is the Alzheimer's Disease Center, and the second is called the Mayo Clinic Study of Aging. This is a study of people who are randomly selected from Rochester Olmstead County. They're clinically characterized extensively. They volunteer for brain imaging studies and cerebral spinal fluid. And this is the primary population here where we do these sorts of investigations that I mentioned a second ago. How do biomarkers work? What are their predictive uh, uh, ability? In whom would they logically be applied if and when treatments are uh, available? So this is a very valuable, very important study. It's actually the only study, to my knowledge, in the world where we have this situation where we have, where we have a random population-based sample. So people can't volunteer out of interest. And therefore, we really see what biomarkers look like in an unbiased sample of the population, but in whom we also do extensive biomarker phenotyping. To my knowledge, it's the only study in the world that has those really important characteristics for understanding how biomarkers work and eventually will be applied in clinical practice, particularly when treatments become available. Well, here's what I think. I think we've got a new test for this uh, because I think if you were able to learn and understand everything that Dr. Jack has said, you don't have Alzheimer's disease. (laughs) Dr. Clipper Jack, thanks so much for being with us. Radiologist and Alzheimer's researcher, Dr. Jack, thanks. Thank you very much for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear about a new NBC program, Health and Happiness with Mayo Clinic. And later on the show, we'll look back with a Mayo Clinic physician at 40 years of treating stroke. Want to hear more and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or check out more than 200 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on video, now available on YouTube. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Opioid medications are important for managing pain, but repetitive use can lead to dependence, physical tolerance, cravings, inability to control use, and continued use despite harmful consequences. Addiction and overdose are serious risks. Opioids used during pregnancy might cross the placenta and enter the fetal central nervous system. Although occasional use of opioids during pregnancy doesn't typically pose concerns for the baby, use of opioids close to delivery might cause the baby to experience 
experience slow and ineffective breathing after birth. Complications that have been associated with opioid dependency during pregnancy include placental problems, premature rupture of membranes, preterm labor and birth, miscarriage or fetal death, and postpartum heavy bleeding. If you become opioid dependent during pregnancy, your baby could experience the drug withdrawal symptoms known as neonatal abstinence syndrome. Signs and symptoms, which often begin shortly after birth and might last days to weeks, include tremors, diarrhea, uncoordinated sucking reflexes that lead to poor feeding, irritability, high-pitched crying, and poor sleep. Your baby might need to be hospitalized. If you are pregnant, talk to your doctor before taking opioid medications. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Last month, the new TV program, Health and Happiness with Mayo Clinic, began airing on NBC affiliates each Saturday morning. The program showcases how simple lifestyle changes can significantly affect your health, your well-being, and your attitude. Co-host Joey Bauer from NBC and our own Vivian Williams joined each week by Mayo Clinic physicians share their expertise to help us all lead happier, healthier, longer, and more productive lives. And here to discuss is our colleague... Mayo Clinic News Network reporter, Vivian Williams. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) It's great to be here. Of course, our faithful listeners recognize her voice from the news segments each week, but now you get to be the guest and you're nervous? Yeah, it's weird. (laughs) I'm usually the one asking the questions. People usually don't ask me the questions. It's different sitting over there, isn't it? It is. Yeah, Yeah. I'll try to to answer properly and behave myself. Okay, good. Vivian, this has to be pretty exciting, both for you and for the Mayo Clinic. Oh, it's wonderful. And uh, first of all, I want to just tell everyone who's listening that uh, some stations do run it on Sunday. So check oh, your sure. local listing. It okay. all depends on what NBC affiliate is doing that day. Okay. But it's super exciting for me to be able to bring the messages of Mayo Clinic experts to people who can really use the material. It's just great. How long have you been a medical reporter for Mayo Clinic? I, I, you want me to date myself forever? I don't know. I've worked for Mayo Clinic for, for almost 20 years. Okay. Yeah. Before you were the anchor at local TV station KTTC. That's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then you sort of married into the Mayo Clinic, didn't you? I did. It's one of those things. I just, and I just, it, I'm thrilled to be here and to be able to, to work with Mayo. Great. Tell us about health and happiness. How did this all come about? Well, it started. You know, I've been doing these stories for Mayo Clinic for so many years, loving to tell the stories of the patients, the great work the doctors are doing. And we had an opportunity. We just met some people who uh, do programming on Saturday morning, and they said, wouldn't it be great to do medical programming? And I said, yes. And I brought, you know, my boss, Ron Petrovich, in, and we just started brainstorming, and we ended up with this show. And I'm, I'm thrilled to death. Really fun. Is this intended for a particular audience or pretty much has widespread appeal, doesn't it? Anybody who cares about their health and their happiness? Totally. It's for everybody. The Saturday morning programming block is usually traditionally something you think about kids. A lot of teens are watching. A lot of moms are watching. A lot of grandparents are watching, too, so it's really a family thing. But we do try to get, you know, teenagers involved in healthy living because it's all about prevention, really. You know, stuff you do can really make a difference later. So what is your role with this program? Well, I like to think of myself as the mouthpiece for Mayo Clinic experts. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm the translator, kind of what you do, Tracy. You're, you know, we're lay people helping uh, translate what's going on in the medical world. Tell the stories. Exactly. That's what I do, yes. And how do you decide uh, what you're going to do uh, for each program? I mean, is there is it in segments or 
do you have a particular topic that you concentrate on each week? We have a variety of topics each week because we want to appeal to lots of people so everybody can get a little something from it. And the topics are really about healthy living. So it's everything from, and we focus a lot on Mayo research. It's all data-driven because there's a lot of stuff, as you know, on the Internet that may not exactly be the right information Mm -hmm. that you want to be looking at. And so all the the stories that we do are data-driven and it's kind of news you can use stuff. So, for examples, uh, the first episode was um, should you let pets sleep in your bed or <laughs> not? Dr. Lois yeah. Cron, mm-hmm. right? Study. Wait, she's been she's yeah. been on the show, and yeah. we saw you uh, <laughs> on her on your show. And it, was, oh, it was excellent. That's right. I, she would totally bum out because there are a lot of dogs in my room at night. Um, we have three dogs, and then we also talk about you know healthy snacking, hidden sugars, um, and it's not just me giving you tips. It's the Mayo Clinic expert giving the tips. So it's giving access to Mayo experts and information that some people might not have. And how do you decide what you're going to feature each week? It's the, a, their Mayo Clinic people help you decide, you know, we ought to do the story on this, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And do you have a producer, I assume? We, we do have a producer. I work with uh, Jeff Olson. He was a co-anchor of mine here at KTTC. Tracy's worked with him. He's yeah. super good, super good. He's good in front of the camera and behind the camera. <laughs> and then, so it's really a team effort. It's the typical team effort that Mayo does. We bring forth ideas um, after having discussed a variety of options with our team. The thing I like is, this will sound funny, but is at the end. <laughs> Not that I love when it's over, but I like at the end when you say, you know, some ways to be happier and, you know, if I, some of them are coloring, some of them are, you know, meditating or gratitude. You get Dr. Seward in there with great added, uh, gratitude tips. Um, that's an interesting part to add into a health and wellness show. I think it's so important, too. And that's why we want to end the show with it, because all of us, yeah, I had this, this is a, a story. I got had the opportunity to interview one of the oldest women in the world and I, she lived in Minnesota and I th- can't remember she was either 112 or 116 and I asked her you know what's your secret how do you stay and she's one of them was bake bread occasionally <laughs> interestingly so I started doing that and the other one she said was to step outside every day and find something new to look at even if you can't walk or at the end of her life she couldn't and so she just go by a window and and that's sort of the message that the happy notes that's what we call the last mm-hmm. segment of the show that's the message um, of those happy notes and dr sood and some of his colleagues are wonderful because it's all about you know being grateful for what you have and 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 how you can be mm-hmm. happier in life and i think it really works and you know um dr pratish tosh is involved in this as well what is his role he is the medical editor so we really want to make sure, as I said before, you can get some you know, inf- interesting information, yes. medically speaking, on the Internet. <laughs> so we have our doctors check to make sure that the, each expert who comes on checks the stories to make sure they're correct. And Dr. Tosh is our medical editor, another set of eyes, and he also gives us ideas. And he's featured in the show a bunch, yeah. too, because yeah. he's really good at what he does. You don't want to give anybody misinformation. So that's why you've got this medical <laughs> editor. You know, you two seem like a great team. How is Joy Bauer to work with? She's fabulous, and she brings on the show. She's just, uh, she's got tons of energy, and her recipes are wonderful. And I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, where can I find these recipes? And online, you, you can find them. And they're great. I've tried a bunch of them, and they're all very healthy. She's got great ideas. There's one segment from junk food to joy food, so mm-hmm. your favorite mac and cheese, how you can make that dish uh-huh. into something that's a little less uh, 
fattening yeah. or and a little more nutritious. And the last one was the sausages and peppers and onions. And yeah. she's like, you got to change that up. I was so hungry for that sandwich <laughs> by the time we were trying the segment was done. All right, she so, is certainly vivacious. Yes, she yeah, is. Yeah, totally. Tell us about the future of the program. What do you, what's coming up? Well, some some of the new stuff that's coming up, we're talking about one episode about concussions, and it features oh. my son who got bonked on the head pretty badly while he was waterboarding. And, some, and so we're using him as an example. I'm sure he's going to be mortified when he sees it, but that's <laughs> my job to embarrass him. And so we're talking about concussions. We're talking more about, you know, how to get salt out of your diet, um, tips on exercise, how interval training can help keep you younger, big Mayo Clinic study. Um, and you may have had people mm-hmm. on the show talking about that. And we're also we also have stuff about vocal fry. Do you know what vocal fry is? It's that popular way when people talk like this. Yeah, at and, the end. Right. Yeah. And it's just not good for you. Uh, it can be hard on your vocal cords. Sure. What's the favorite, most favorite story you've done so far? I always go for the pet stories because oh, I'm I just can't help it. I love animals, so I love the pet sleeping in the bed, and I love the. One that Dr. Tosh did about our puppy kisses. Yeah. Okay. That you was. To have them lick in your face. And he just had this look on his face the whole time he was talking like, it's okay, but why do you want to do it? His face was so funny. It, it, he's not a good poker player. We'll just say that much. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm not sure if he lets dogs lick him in the face. I'll I have to ask so. him. <laughs> Vivian Williams, so great to have you. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We've been talking with our colleague Vivian Williams about health and happiness with Mayo Clinic, a new educational program on NBC Saturday and sometimes Sunday mornings. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll wrap up American Stroke Month with a Mayo Clinic expert who's been treating stroke for 40 years. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. As we reach the end of May this weekend, we're wrapping up American Stroke Month. And today we'll take a look back at the history of stroke treatment and the improvements that have been made in not only how we treat stroke, but in recognizing stroke earlier and seeking help more quickly, which is critical. Joining us on the phone from Jacksonville, Florida, is Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Thomas Brott. Dr. Brott began practicing medicine in 1978, making this his 40th year of treating patients. In 2017, the American Heart Association awarded Dr. Brott the Research Achievement Award for a Distinguished Lifetime of Scientific Achievement in the Field of Cardiovascular Research. Welcome to the program, Dr. Brott. Thanks, Tracy. It's a delight to be on. So, Dr. Brock, good to have you with us. Uh, you have obviously been at this for a while, that is, seeing patients uh, who have stroke. How did you get interested in the field? Believe it or not, through Mayo Clinic. Uh, I came to Mayo Clinic in 1973 as a medical student from the University of Chicago. And uh, lo and behold, my teachers were absolute giants in the field, uh, Bert Sandock and Jack Wisden. Mm-hmm. And uh, during that summer fellowship, the CT scanner was introduced for the first time in the world at St. Mary's Hospital in Rochester, Minnesota. So that was about 1970, what was it? 1973, Mid-10? that's 45 years ago. And for the first time, we could see inside the brain, and we could see a brain hemorrhage versus a stroke called by a blockage, which was a true revolution in stroke medicine. And how long have you been in Jacksonville? I've been here for 20 years. And was that when it opened? Uh, no, it opened about uh, close to 30 years ago. Oh, my gosh, really? So where were you prior to that? 
I was at the University of Cincinnati. That's where I began practice, actually in private practice uh, for three years and then at the university for 17 years. All right, so tell us about the advancements that you've seen uh, during your career, uh, particularly with regard to not only diagnosing but treating patients with stroke. Well, to treat, first we had to be able to diagnose and diagnose quickly. The CT scan allowed us to do that. One in six strokes is from bleeding, the hemorrhage. Five out of six are from a blockage. So if you use a clot-busting medicine, you know, you can't use that in the one out of six. It would be truly Russian roulette. So the CT scan was key. The difference being that with the CT scan, you can tell what type of stroke it is, and then you know what the appropriate treatment is. Absolutely, and technology came right into it. At that time, in the 70s, we had recombinant biology, which allowed us to synthesize TPA that we all make, but synthesize it and then test it. The other technology were cell phones where we could have communication with the hospitals and doctors so that we could deliver a clot-busting medicine and do it within minutes. So TPA is the clot buster? Yes. And so if somebody has the typical kind of a stroke, the most common type of stroke, a blood vessel in the brain gets clogged, you put a catheter up there and unclog it, break up the clot. Well, that's what we do today. That's the advance of endovascular intervention. To begin with, we gave it by the vein where the concentration of TPA would be 2,000 times what we make with our own bodies. For the smaller clots, uh, the clots that, let's say, are almost 911 clots but not quite, those types of strokes were treated very successfully with TPA in the late 70s and early 80s. Tell us a little bit more about that clot-busting medication, because I didn't know until we were preparing for this interview that you were one of the lead investigators in uh, the clot-buster medication. The first patient to be treated for stroke with um, TPA was treated in 1987 at the Christ Hospital, and we were lucky enough to have a network of 12 cooperating hospitals. And by using cell phones, paramedics, EMTs, we had a coordinated system that allowed us to take advantage of what we hear today, time is brain, every minute counts. So we had a small, compact city, and we had the right biology, the right diagnostic technology with CT scan, and the right communication system. So it kind of came together. So what made you think that TPA would, would work? Well, we knew it worked in the heart. It had been approved by the FDA in the heart, so it opened up the clots that cause heart attacks. So it wasn't a stretch to then think it might work for the brain. Now, as you know, Tom, TPA was actually a stroke was a contraindication early on because of the sphere of hemorrhage. But with CT scans and the ability to look at patients carefully, we could sort out the right patient. So in other words, if you gave TPA to a patient who was having the uncommon type of stroke, the bleeding type of stroke, you would actually make them worse? Much worse, if not cause their death. Mm. All right, but now by doing the CT scan, you can tell what kind of stroke it is and whether or not you ought to pursue the TPA. Right, and the advances in technology, CTA, computed tomography, angiography, MRA, magnetic resonance angiography. Now these new technologies, we can see the clot and decide, well, is TPA enough or do we need to use that catheter that you referred to and go right up into the brain? And how quickly does this have to happen in order to reverse a stroke? Well, I'm pleased to say we used to think you had to do it within 90 minutes, then within three hours. 
Today we have studies that show that you can go out to 24 hours in patients with clots who have good kind of collaterals or blood vessels coming in from other parts of the brain. So it's not too late for the stroke patient at 12 hours or really? even a little later. Now that's the if first they've got good heard. collateral. Oh, my gosh. Fabulous. Is If you could have heard that news back when you started in the 70s, would you have believed it? Well, I probably would have. We we knew we knew that these collateral blood vessels. Remember, this is not everybody. It's still time is brain. So well, let's say somebody has a stroke. Sure. They're paralyzed. They're on the kitchen floor. Every minute counts because you don't know. Is that a patient with good collateral circulation? In other words, blood vessels coming in from other parts of the brain. You don't know that. So you've got to get them to the hospital immediately. You've got to evaluate them immediately and decide, is this for IV TPA through the vein, or do we take this person to the cath lab? Uh, we were speaking at the beginning how uh, we're wrapping up American Stroke Month. Uh, why is it beneficial to have this recognized? Well, mortality has gone down really miraculously in 30 years, 40%. You know, cancer mortality has only gone down about 5%. 40%. That's that's remarkable. Has gone down. And it's gone down wow. because we're not smoking, we're taking care of lipids, we're exercising, we have new medicines for atrial fibrillation, we have better medicines, antiplatelet medicines than we ever had before. So that's a miracle. But yet in our current study in CREST 2 where we look at carotid disease, 40% of the patients from the best medical centers in the country are coming to us and their cholesterol is too high. 30% are coming to us, again, from the best hospitals in the country and their blood pressure is too high. So the, the kind of the message, whether it's prevention of stroke with atrial fibrillation to be on the right medicine, taking care of your blood pressure, taking care of your lipids, those messages need to get out there and stroke month helps us carry that message to the people that need it. Finally, how does it feel to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Heart Association? Well, these awards go to one person, but you can imagine with stroke. It starts with the person's spouse calling on the phone. <laughs> My husband's paralyzed. The EMT, getting him to the emergency department, calling the stroke team, getting him to the cath lab. You know, and then one person gets the award. Yes, it's <laughs> wonderful, but it is a team. Well, congratulations and a well-deserved uh, award. And it's so good to know that we've got up to 12 hours to potentially reverse a stroke, and so much progress has been made during your lifetime. Thank you so much. And, for you know, some patients, even 24, but every All right, we're stretching counts. it now. Yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> we're wrapping up American Stroke Month with Mayo Clinic Neurologist Dr. Thomas Brott. He has seen improvements, marked improvements, in treating stroke over his 40 years of practice. Thanks again, Dr. Brott. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.